When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we bring you part two of our live event, Can Economic Wellbeing Exist Independently of Economic Growth? This event was hosted by journalist Kamal Ahmed, who was joined by three influential economists, Kate Rayworth, Helen Thompson, and Bim Afalami. Part one of this event was released on our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first, if you can. Part three of this conversation is available exclusively to subscribers. This event took place in May 2023 and is part of Intelligence Squared's live debate partnership with the South Bank Centre. Bim, can I bring you in on politicians will never be brave enough to make the leap. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with that subject, but that's what's been raised by both Helen and Kate, Mm. that we can't actually have a serious conversation about the limits of, let's call it, economic growth, because politicians in the mainstream parties will never go there. Are you constrained by what you can say, because you've got to keep to the simple narrative growth is good. Economic growth is good, because growth of all sorts is good, but economic growth. Look, I don't think I feel unduly constrained, but I listen very carefully and I've read a lot of what Kate has written and I want to just address some of the points and see and take, give you my take on them in that context. I think that, and what I was at pains to do, not just here, but whenever I'm speaking, whenever I speak to constituents or in the House of Commons or whatever it is, to think about what are the outcomes for people, right? So you mentioned, no, we're stuck in a growth paradigm that means that we keep repeating this sort of mantra, growth is good. But ultimately, what all politicians are in the business of is delivering better outcomes for people, not just materially, but also in education, health, all sorts of opportunities that are not just material. The problem is that we live in a world whereby 
unless you have enough material, free money, whether as an individual, a family, or a country, you can't deliver those practical outcomes. So when somebody says, this growth is running out and there's nothing you can do, we now need to just think about how to make do with what we have or to not grow anymore, that's very difficult if waiting lists are rising, right? That's very difficult if there are no spaces to get on the course you want to further education or university. So I am all ears as to how we now, and you're right about living in a more mature society. Obviously, we're not in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or we're not China in 1983. Or, Of course, there are periods of time when just things are going exponentially like that. You look at the whole Western economy, the difficulties that we have are mirrored by the difficulties in most European countries, most Western countries, as Helen outlined in the energy space as well. But you do need to deliver better outcomes for people all the time. And some of those things are non-material. I mentioned regulation. I mean, boring though it is, we can get a much better regulatory system without spending more money. It's just thinking about it more smartly. But some of them do require more money. Why? Because people, as human beings, we always want to get things to be better. You want, I want my children's lives to be better than my own. And I don't mean better in them having more money than me. Actually have better experiences, to live longer, to have better opportunities. And so that's what we're focused on. I don't think when SA is stuck in this sort of paradigm that, that you've described, I think what we are stuck in is a paradigm of trying to make things better for everybody. And so I'm all ears as to how we can do that both financially, economically, and in other ways. So, Kate, that's boom. So, Kate, that's really interesting. We've had a question from Sarah who goes to the same area, Helen, that you have and Bim that you have. And maybe, Kate, you could help us on this journey. This notion of things like the NHS aren't like a maturing tree. They don't get to a stage where we say the NHS is now the oak tree and that's as long as we keep it the sign of the same shape doing the same thing. It, but it actually, the demands on the NHS are growing and becoming more expensive. So Sarah asks, how can you fund the NHS and public services without economic growth of the type that you so persuasively have said is the wrong or the wrong metric to have. Health is one of the most fundamental things that we want and that's why in this country there's a particular love of the NHS. We can have all the healthcare that we want if we choose to invest in it with strong state capacity, right? So if we choose as a nation to invest the extraordinary resources richer than almost any nation before us, if we choose to invest a significant portion of our collective wealth in healthcare, we can have that. We do not need an endlessly growing economy to deliver that. Costa Rica has higher life expectancy than the United States and has one-third of the income per person of the United States because they've chosen to invest in public healthcare and we all know what's happening with healthcare in the US. It doesn't work. So it's a choice. To say that the only way we can have healthcare in this country is an endlessly growing economy is to miss the fact that it's about public choices of what we collectively provide, public healthcare, public education, public transit, what George Monbiot, the writer, calls public luxury and private sufficiency, rather than, and I want to come to this point, a country of private luxury and public squalor. Because what we haven't yet mentioned in this, in this debate is this country is extraordinarily unequal. So when we talk about growth, we always should say, who's growth? When the UK GDP is growth, who's growth? Yeah. 
Have you ever because thought of I, being a I politician? Say, can I just put it? Sorry, I just put, want to put, put it down. in again. So, <laughs> in the UK, the richest 1% have seen their incomes rising since 1980. The richest five households in this country own more wealth than the poorest 20% of people. The average worker's wage has actually fallen by around 11,000 £11, in real terms over the last 15 years. The number of people queuing at food banks and asking for has doubled over the last five years, while the wealthiest are running away. So this is why I think we actually really, really want growth in the words of Henry Wallach, a former US governor of the Federal Reserve. As long as there is growth, there is hope. And when growth stops, the dream that everybody will have more stops because suddenly the party stops and we look and we see how it's distributed and it's stuck. Why have we allowed this nation to become so unequal? Why do we invest so little in public health and public education and allow these vast inequalities of the richness that we have here? I, friends in Tanzania, I think they must just look at us and think, you have people sleeping in the streets, you have people queuing for food, you have 30 times the wealth that we have. Why have you allowed this to happen? So it's not about the chasing endless growth. It's about far more equitably using the resources we have, including investing in the NHS, including investing in schools, so that what we want, and I want, I agree with you, Bim, I want a better life for my kids. I want them to have a great education in a state school. I want to know that when I'm ill, I can go to the A&E department, I can go to the NHS and I will be cared for. I want to be able to travel here and home on good public transport. I want public luxury. And that's a political choice that we make, not through chasing growth, but through deciding as a nation to invest in it. So who gets less, Kate? That 1% that is running away with and chasing money off into tax havens. The Shell and BP, who just made £40 billion, £30 billion in the last year, from fossil fuels, which should be banned now in this nation because we know too much about climate change to permit that to go on. Because if we want better lives for our kids, we stop that right now. Stop fossil fuels right now. Apparently. Helen, give, give us your perspective on disorder very cleverly brings together, as you said, that sort of mix of economics, but particularly energy, oil, finance and politics and how they're all interconnected. Kate has enormously passionately and persuasively given us one model of how we can rethink what the notion of growth really should mean. I just wondered, Helen, what is your map for the future that is built on your understanding of the disorder that has been created in the past? I think we have to start with what an unbelievably difficult position that we are in with energy. And that is because we are simultaneously in a crisis of the fossil fuel energy regime. And I am afraid don't believe that we can get rid of fossil fuels anytime soon. And we are trying to reinvent the entire material basis of our civilization, growth or no growth, with a different kind of energy regime, a low carbon energy regime. And progress towards that is very slow when you look at it in relation to the aspirations that have been there really since the 1970s to have an energy revolution of one kind or another. And some of those reasons are 
because there's insufficient political will to pursue the energy transition. Some of it is because more investment could take place and it doesn't take place in capacity. But it's also because it's incredibly difficult to pursue the energy transition. We are trying, leaving nuclear power out of it, to move from a world of higher density energy to lower density energy. Every energy transition that's taken place before has gone in the opposite direction, from lower to higher. And we're trying to reverse that and have essentially the same standards of living, let alone the idea whether they're going to increase or not. I think that's probably not possible. And I think that, though, I have a great deal of sympathy for Bim in his <laughs> piece because trying to explain this and trying to engage with this as a political problem is, is absolutely a mind-boggling thing to do. But I don't think that we're going to get very far in the next 10 years, 20 years, without having some kind of reckoning with the problem that energy poses us. And what we have to understand is this is where we as human beings, we can't innovate our way out of the fundamental energy aspects of this. We can, we can innovate our way to technologies that will allow us to do various things with energy more effectively or less effectively, but we can't create energy. We, we just can't. That is, that's the laws of physics that we can't. We as humanity have to live with energy constraints. And I think that we've reached a point in our politics, and in some sense humanity's reached a point where we have to face that much more directly than we've hitherto done. And that's partly what is making yes. politics so difficult and partly why it then becomes so difficult to articulate any kind of coherent vision. I could give you some aspirations, but they just seem like... Where do you start that, Helen? Where do you start that conversation? Because, Kate, I'm going to come back to you before I come to you, Ben, but, Helen, for you first, where do you start that conversation? Because, Kate, and I might have misheard you, but it sounds like you would rather, to get to some of the solutions you passionately believe in, you want to order people to do certain things from tomorrow which rely on fossil fuel. Now, Helen, politically, to me, that is an impossibility. So socially, it's an impossibility. Because people believe that lots of the way they live presently is their right to live like that. Now, you may disagree with that, I can't see how you can start having a conversation with the population of the UK or the population of any Western developed nation to say some authority is going to order you to stop doing things in the way you're doing them at present. But I wanted to ask Helen first, because you raised first this idea that politicians, it's impossible. So where could that debate start, apart from in very clever books and wonderful debates like this? No. <laughs> I certainly don't think the answers come from books, don't get me wrong at all. <laughs> all I would say is this, is that I think that in this respect we are in a better place now than we were two or three years ago. Because I think that the levels of consciousness about energy and the complexity of energy is a lot higher than it was. I actually think Russia's war against Ukraine can actually, is responsible in part for the fact that people have become more energy aware. It's a lot easier to say things about energy than it was 18 months ago. I remember that I wrote a column in the New Statesman when I was still doing that. I think it was in the autumn of 2021 and I framed it around what was going on in gas markets and the, uh, the COP summit in Glasgow and basically said reduced energy consumption would have to be part of politics in the future. And it was like breaking a taboo. It felt insane that nobody took any notice of anything that I said about it. It was just a piece that just disappeared into the void. 
after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I would say things like this in podcasts, and that people would take me more seriously and start asking questions about it. And I think that is progress, because I think that the age in which these really profound questions that energy, growth, what does it mean to live on this planet in a sustainable way couldn't really be talked about seriously. There was lots of gesture politics around it, lots of rhetoric about it. That's what the net zero 2050 had in it. But it wasn't serious. Now it's more serious, and that's at least a start. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Kate, before I come to you, Bim, Kate, give me some steps to where you want to get to that you think you think you could apply to the United Kingdom and people wouldn't be marching in their millions across the bridge in Westminster. So you said I, you think I want to order people to do things as if governments never set any regulations. To, governments are ordering people to do things all the time, some of which I deeply disagree with, like it's now practically illegal to have a demonstration if the government think you're going to create disorder, if you're standing there to defend the living world, that's practically illegal. However, sometimes the government absolutely, governments around the world have been ordering people to cut their carbon emissions as part of the global climate negotiations. Each country has its commitments. When are we going to get to net zero? How are we going to do it? London orders people not to smoke in public places or in restaurants or in pubs, that happened. Now the ultra-low emission zone, 
The cars are being stopped with bollards from driving in streets. Amsterdam is going to have no fossil fuel vehicles from 2030. When there's a drought, and we're talking, and I deeply agree with Helen that energy is the currency of the world. Money is a, an, a human illusion that we've created. Energy is the ultimate currency of life. Let's talk about water. When there's a drought, the government orders us <laughs> to not wash your cars and to reduce... This is going to become more and more of a reality as energy constraints kick in. The Netherlands have now got what's known as the nitrogen ceiling. They've been told by the European Commission, you are producing far too much effluent because you have too many chickens and cows and pigs and you're using too much nitrogen. So you need to transform your agriculture. This is getting real because we have overshot the means of the planet. So we need governments that absolutely can talk about the reality of this it was 40 degrees in England last summer. People are beginning to understand this is real. And we need to reduce our carbon emissions. We need to reduce our water use. And London is at real risk of drought. So I'm not making this stuff up. We need to learn to not think only in terms of better lives in terms of money. And I think actually all of us agreeing that's not what a better life is. But the resource realities and the fragility of the world means we need to reduce our impact. And by the way, these can be better lives. Kids biking to school is a better life than kids being driven to school in gas-guzzling SUVs. I think it's time for governments to edit out certain technologies like SUVs in cities, luxury flights, private jets, those luxury cruise ships. These things do not belong anymore because we know too much. This is a extremely wasteful use of a very precious resource of energy, yes, let's edit them out and edit in public, accessible, affordable alternatives. Okay, so, Bim, which of those... <laughs> Bim, which of those policies are you going to put in the next manifesto? The ending of private jets, the ending of luxury air travel and the ending of cruise ships? Sounds any, actually, one second. Has anyone been on a cruise ship in this building? Mm. I was talking about yes. the privately owned luxury liners by individuals. You're her her next holiday. Mm. No. But, you, but you don't mean cruise ships that take you to Brittany ferries. Is that OK? No, or, I'm, talking right. about, I'm talking about luxury ships owned by okay. billionaires. So those. Are you going to do any of those things? Look, I'm not sure I agree with that. Let me set it out as I see it. And for a second, to zoom out and remember... And I think of this, one of the great advantages of having parents who've come from... My father's Nigerian, my mother grew up in this country and is also Nigerian, is you do, ever since a young age, I've always seen the world just a bit differently, living in this country and growing up here. And when you are in a third-world country, we are... Yes, we're a rich country, yes, we're an important country with a wonderful history, but we are a comparatively small part of the world's population. And when you're in other countries particularly poorer countries, and if in Nigeria somebody, I'm sure there's somebody from Nigeria listening, watching this on live stream, and they may be looking at this debate, and they must be thinking, what planet are these people on? They'll be saying, it's only rich Western people who want to now say, look, world, we've had a good run, <laughs> and what we've got to do, we've got to stop all this, and we're just going to manage where we are but if you want a car, notwithstanding electric vehicles, because the materials inherent in any electric vehicle need to be mined out of the ground using huge amounts of minerals, and that's a very energy-intensive process, as of course you fully understand. So if you want a car, you want 
working electricity, you want even a fraction of the lives that they watch on TV and they see that we have. And then they say that what we should, the, the, then they hear us saying, no, we've got, to, we've got to stop that. Because the way that is, I'm afraid, is it really drives a lot of people in what we used to call the third world emerging markets, the emer developing world, it drives them completely bananas because they say, we have a right to the sort of life that you have here. And we've got to remember that when we have this debate. And, and just to, in particular, just go back on some of your previous comments. I think that we need to distinguish between a very reasonable debate about how you grow. How material is that? How much do you chase GDP? What are the negative externalities of things that you do? And obviously the environmental debate is a core part of that. And that's a very reasonable debate. But that's not quite the same debate is a, frankly, a straightforward debate that we've been having for generations about redistribution of wealth. That's a reasonable debate to have. It's what a lot of our politics is about. How much should you tax this person compared to this person or this company? That's reasonable politics. We continue to do that. It's very reasonable to say you think that we should, I don't know, raise taxes on certain companies or certain rich people or whatever. But bearing in mind, we are at, right now, the highest tax burden than we have had for 70 years. Even if we were to raise that tax burden further all, on all the richest people and companies, the ones that were not mobile, the capital that wasn't able to go somewhere else, because obviously quite a lot of it can, I doubt very much that we'd now be in a land of milk and honey where all of the things that we wanted could all automatically be produced. So it requires tough choices. And if you say to people in this audience today, do they feel undertaxed? I suspect a lot of them would probably say no. They probably feel actually financially, things are quite tough. And a lot of the things they want to buy and they want to do that they were doing 10 years ago, they can't do. So I just think that, first of all, we've got to bear in mind we're in a world of which we are a small part and other people have the right to their human aspiration to do what we, to live the lives that we have. And the second thing is, yes, let's talk about redistribution, but let's not pretend that is the same thing as the broader narrative about whether growth is good or not. I'm not talking about Nigeria or Tanzania or Bangladesh. Those nations and people who live in poverty in those nations absolutely have a right to live well. But that will damage the environment, as you will appreciate. No, those people have a right to meet their human rights, to health and education and housing. That's the heart of donor economics. Leave nobody falling short on life's essentials. They have a right to the resources that we excessively use in this nation to be used for their development. I would keep quite separate the needs of development in Nigeria and Tanzania and Bangladesh from the massive excessive consumption of energy and resources in this country. To say that we, we should keep on growing to support them is like saying the rich man needs to keep eating more so some more crumbs fall off his table. They have the claim to the resources and I believe we're going to see a lot more self trade and emergence of those nations. I'm talking about this country. We have to come back with implantation and meet them somewhere reasonable that's an, actually an accessible lifestyle for people worldwide somewhere in the middle. So we need to come back down and they need to rise up and we meet somewhere in the middle. So that's, look, that's perfectly reasonable, but if I've heard you correctly, when you said effectively you've got two and we meet in the middle, is what you're saying 
and this going to Helen's point about the impossibility of politics, is what you are saying that we should knowingly, actively reduce the living standards of some people in a small number of Western rich countries and allow the living standards of poorer countries that we've talked about to continue to rise in whatever way as they choose to see fit. So actively reduce the living standards of people who we represent. You're saying living standards. Yeah. I think there's a gap between living standards and excessive resource use. So, for example, kids being driven to school in diesel fossil fuel cars to me is not living standards. Kids who can cycle to school with clean air in protected bike lanes, that's living standards. Massive reduction in energy and material use. So we want living standards that are nothing like as intensive as the ones we have because we are over-consuming our fair share of Earth's resources and in the process, creating climate change for people that hits people in Nigeria, waist deep in Bangladesh. They are looking at us saying, we, the world scientists can now show, prove you your emissions are destabilizing the climate and causing these floods and these droughts. It's direct connection. So they, you're saying they say, don't stop us from growing. They're saying, could you please come back to a reasonable level of resource use so that we actually have a chance to thrive and our crops will grow and our harvest will mature. We need to come back within the means of the planet. I know, I totally empathize. That's a very hard message to take to the public because the adult generation today have been raised without an awareness of the planet, without an awareness of our wealth, without a recognition of the dependence of the whole world. I see a rising young people, generation of young people. They are the ones who are seeing these connections and they are the justice leaders, but we can't leave it up to them. We have to bring it into today's politics and take responsibility because we are the generation in power. You know, we can't say, oh, it's up to you, young people. I know no one's here saying that, but that's what I can't bear. It's up to you next. No, the generation that holds power now must find ways to transform politics, open up these debates, reduce our impact on the living world, rather than get caught in these... Now, there's no way we can do it. And I really want to... How do we transform this yeah. politics? Thank you, Kate. Brilliant. Helen, just before we come to the audience for the millions of questions I know there will be, Helen, I just wanted to slightly shift the focus a little. There's a... I would call radical, I'm sure, Kate, you would just call sensible a solution to a notion of your journey, what you would like us to be thinking about in the United Kingdom and all Western developed capitalist economies. I just wondered, Helen, in your mind, is there a starting point? I know you focused hugely on energy, but are there other economic things that could happen if we were to think about the inequities and the inequalities that we are facing as developed Western nations. I travel a lot on a plane to America, so apologies, but I spend a lot of time in America now. Our business is New York, London. And it is an astonishing when you go there to see the inequities of the world's richest country. You walk around New York and there are people living in the subways, in sleeping bags mental health issues, drug issues, whatever it might be, that, that that is still a shocking sight, even though we see some of similar problems in the UK. I just wondered, Helen, beyond the solutions that Kate is outlining, in economic terms, can you sense there are any quicker, maybe easier fixes for the public to stomach in terms of inequality? One thing I think that is true and then this is or has become anyway bound up with the energy transition I think that it's quite hard 
really for there to be a significant reduction in inequality, leaving aside what could be done still via redistribution, and I sort of agree, I think, with BIM's position, somewhat at least, on, on that, without creating better-paid jobs. And that really, I think, in Western countries means trying to have more manufacturing jobs again. And I think that is what actually, in lots of ways, got us to the point which I think net zero was in significant part about, which was green growth, which was the idea that actually the energy transition itself would be the engine of growth, and that for Western countries, it would be an opportunity to recreate industrial manufacturing production, to reshore it from China, to get going again, in some sense to have a second industrial revolution, and to reset the economy in terms of these inequality issues, including inequality of regions, by doing that. I think the, the difficulty is that the energy transition economically is already really dominated by China. And now the United States is trying to play catch-up on quite a scale. That's what the US Inflation Reduction Act is. And I just don't think it's going to be possible, I'm afraid, for the United States to succeed at rebuilding its manufacturing industrial base and addressing inequality in the United States and providing some kind of political bulwark against a future Trump-style presidency, and for all the European countries who want to do it, including us, to be doing it at the same time. But the more that we can do that, the more that we can find better-paying jobs that also have a certain dignity, I think, to them, that quite often the kind of service jobs that we've been creating since the 1970s, often casual, part-time... I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with part-time work, but they're, they're not... I'm just not convinced that the distribution of employment in this country helps in this, it helps in this respect. But the more that we can do that, I think that the easier our politics will be, and I think it will do something, or it could do something to address the inequality. Mm. The notion of being in work and poor... Yeah. is a new and growing trend, yeah. which is remarkable. And it's very, we have it's high very employment, yeah. but still poverty. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The third and final part of this conversation is exclusively available to our subscribers who can access all episodes ad-free now. This event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
and we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.